Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, where we're going to be taking a look this evening at the uh, politics of the protest movement in Hong Kong and uh, some of the strange contradictions which it appears to be facing and how it relates to uh, the self-determination struggles of minority peoples in the People's Republic of China. And this has been playing itself out here in New York City, very obviously, on a, uh, a particular wall of a construction site in Chinatown, here in Manhattan. You want to see it? It's on the north side of Grand Street, in between Eldridge and Forsyth Streets, where a group by the name of NY4HK, that's the number four, NY4HK, which has been organizing in solidarity with the Hong Kong protesters here in New York City, has established what they are calling a Lenin Wall. That's not Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, that's John Lenin of the Beatles. Sort of in the spirit of peace and love, the protesters in Hong Kong have erected various Lenin Walls where um, supporters of the movement have been putting up their uh, their messages for public display. And supporters of uh, the Hong Kong protesters here in New York have also established a Lenin Wall down on, on Grand Street in Chinatown, where they've been putting up their propaganda and messages of support for the Hong Kong protesters. Again, while uh, in recent days, as things have really escalated in Hong Kong, some of the protesters have been using Molotov cocktails and have been throwing rocks and bottles at the police and so on. The same kind of shenanigans that we used to do here on the Lower East Side back in the 80s. (laughs) You know, the fact that they're calling it the Lenin Wall is, uh, you know, definitely supposed to um, emphasize the spirit of peace and love behind the the protest movement. So um, for the past couple of weeks now, people have been putting up basically, you know, messages which are very um, good vibes, so to speak, with just um, uh, basic pro-democracy messages on the so-called Lenin Wall. And um, last week, the elements in Chinatown, which are uh, loyal to the Beijing government and to the Communist Party of China, sort of went on the propaganda counterattack. And somebody defaced the Lenin wall with uh, red spray paint and wrote, and forgive my language here, (coughs) warning in alert. I'm going to be using some bad words over the course of this podcast because uh, they are necessary due to the nature of what I'm talking about. Somebody scrawled in red spray paint over the Lenin wall in big block letters, fuck HK Roach. So calling the people of Hong Kong, or at least the protesters in Hong Kong, roaches. Definitely not good vibes. It escalated from there. The pro-protester people went on the counter-counter attack, and they uh, created a poster, which they put on the Lenin wall over where it had been spray-painted, with a photo of the the spray-painted defacement of the wall, where it said, fuck HK Roach. The text read, Nazi Germany referred to the Poles as Eastern European species of cockroach. The perpetrators of Rwanda genocide, and I'm reading the verbatim here, which is why it's slightly stilted. Perpetrators of Rwanda genocide call Tutsi and moderate Hutu victim groups as cockroaches. Hong Kong police officers and Chinese communist supporters are calling Hong Kong protesters cockroaches. 
pro-communist mainland Chinese are now calling Hong Kongers cockroaches, quote-unquote, right here in NYC Chinatown. And up at the top it says, yes, you are standing at the scene of a hate crime. A couple of days after that, I've been going down to Grand Street just about every day to watch the, uh, the action changing on the Lenin Wall. A couple of days after that, the pro-Beijing faction in the neighborhood, the pro-CCP, Chinese Communist Party, element in the neighborhood went on the counter-counter-counter-attack and um, produced a, a poster that they put up on the wall accusing the protesters of a, quote-unquote, hate crime. Here is where, you know, uh, it gets a little bit out of my depth, so to speak, and I'm just kind of doing the best I can to try to figure things out. I do not speak Chinese, okay? Uh, You know, there are certain areas where I claim a certain degree of expertise. Let me uh, hasten to emphasize here with this caveat, okay? I claim a certain degree of expertise on Latin America. I speak Spanish. I've written books about Latin America, at least where, you know, peasant and indigenous struggles in Mexico, Central America, and the Andes are concerned— I claim a certain degree of expertise and I can claim a certain degree of expertise on New York City or at least the Lower East Side by virtue of having lived here all my life or having lived in New York City all my life and having lived on the Lower East Side for 30 years. I do not claim expertise on China. I do not speak the language. I was only in China for two weeks in my entire life and um, that only as a tourist. So, you know, I'm going to begin with the caveat that I'm just trying to... um, figure things out about what's going on with what I'm talking about as a, you know, a well-informed commentator, but not an expert. I would like to think that I'm a well-informed commentator at least, but by no means an expert, particularly where the language is concerned. You know, I can basically say ni hao and she she. That's about the extent of my Chinese. So like I was saying, the uh, pro-CCP element in the neighborhood, you know, went on the counter, counter, counter attack and produced a, um, a poster that they put on the Lenin wall down on Grand Street accusing the Hong Kong protesters of a, quote-unquote, hate crime. And uh, it showed a picture of the wall of government office building in Hong Kong, which had been um, marred with graffiti. And it said, Hong Kong protesters, quote-unquote, of course, they're putting the word protesters in quotation marks as if they aren't really protesters. I don't know what that's supposed to imply. Anyway, Hong Kong protesters spray racist word, Z-na, And, okay, here, again, I'm reading from the verbatim of what it actually says on this poster. So, again, warning, I'm going to be using a very ugly word. Hong Kong protesters spray racist word, Z-na, open parentheses, chink in English, close parentheses, on the front gate of the liaison office of the Chinese government in Hong Kong. So, uh... Are both sides engaging in hate speech here? Well, I tried to figure out as best I could through um, Googling what actually Z-na means. And, you know, is it really the equivalent of the hateful and ugly word chink in English? And again, forgive me for using an ugly and hateful word, but I'm acknowledging that I'm doing so and it's necessary for context here, okay? So uh, as near as I was able to glean from my uh, Googling, Z-na seems to be the um, Japanese rendering of China, but has a derogatory connotation in the Sinophone world due to the legacy of World War II when um, China was occupied by Japan. 
if in fact, you know, uh, this was what was spray painted and it's you know, Chinese characters, so I can't check. But uh, if in fact, you know, this word was spray painted on the liaison office in Hong Kong, well, uh, you know, that may not exactly be the most astute or politic tactic, shall we say. I don't know if it's quite as ugly as, you know, C-H-I-N-K, but it certainly does seem to have a derogatory connotation. First of all, I should make clear here, okay, that when push comes to shove, I am on the side of the Hong Kong protesters, and I do not see how it's possible to not be on the side of the Hong Kong protesters. First and foremost among their demands is universal suffrage and the right to, you know, hold unfettered elections for the chief executive of Hong Kong, okay? And, you know, I just do do not see how it is possible to not support that demand, as, you know, many, unfortunately, many here on the left in the United States are kind of, you know, equivocating on supporting the Hong Kong protesters because, you know, Trump and the political establishment in this country have also, you know, made some noises, paid some lip service to the notion of support for the protesters. Of course, they're doing so for their own cynical reasons, you know, because it's it's youthful propaganda for the whole uh, U.S.-China imperial rivalry. They don't have any real concern for the protesters in Hong Kong, just like they don't have any real concern for the protesters in Iran over the past few years and so on. They're exploiting them for propaganda. Obviously, you know, Trump, who has openly demonized protesters, if you remember when he was on the campaign trail and there were uh, protesters who, uh, you know, showed up at some of his rallies and he would say things like, and I'm, this is very, very close to verbatim, as close to verbatim as I can remember. He said things like, ah, you know, kick them out of here. I hope they take them out in a stretcher. That's the problem today. There aren't any more consequences of protesting. We're too gentle with these people, quote unquote. Now, does this sound like somebody who is actually legitimately concerned with, 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 with protesters and human rights? Obviously, he is cynically exploiting the Hong Kong protesters for propaganda purposes because of the U.S.-China imperial rivalry. And we should not let that confuse us. Just like, you know, the uh, the protesters in Hong Kong, I hope that they aren't being confused. And, you know, there have been instances where, uh, you know, some of the protesters in Hong Kong have actually showed up at rallies waving American flags and so on, which I think is also a tactical error on their part. OK, but uh, so, you know, I am obviously here. I'm looking with something of a critical eye at the Hong Kong protesters. Hopefully not in, you know, an arrogant and condescending manner, given that I'm on the other side of the planet and not facing the same circumstances that they're facing. But nonetheless, you know, I believe in a ruthless criticism of all existing reality, as somebody once put it. <clears throat> so uh, I got to call it as I see it. Ultimately, I'm on the side of the protesters, despite whatever criticisms that I may have. But certainly, uh, you know, if they have naivete about um, U.S. intentions and are looking to Trump or to um, the British, the former colonial rulers of Hong Kong, as their protectors. They're looking to, you know, big daddy U.S. imperialism or big daddy British imperialism as their protectors against, uh, you know, big daddy Chinese imperialism. You know, that's, uh, I would humbly submit, that's a tactical error on their part. I'm going to have more to say about this later. Some of the, uh, the rhetoric which has been bandied about by the protest movement in Hong Kong, I have noted, in addition to, you know, some of it, 
And again, it's a big movement in which probably up to a million people have participated in this, but many hundreds of thousands. So I don't want to paint with any too broad a brush here. You're going to have a wide spectrum of opinion in any movement of that size, okay? But there have been elements, at least, which have, you know, looked to uh, to Washington and London, you know, for succor and have waved the American flag. And there's also, which I think is an error, and uh, there's also been a certain tendency in some of their rhetoric to... Um, to dis Chinese mainlanders, and there's been a certain whiff of cultural chauvinism in some of the rhetoric which has been which has been employed in the protest movement. A lot of the rhetoric, I would say most of the rhetoric is simply pro-democracy sentiments, which of course I completely support and we should all support. Obviously, a lot of it is also has to do with, I mean, the reason they want direct free elections in Hong Kong is because of, you know, the various issues of urban development, which the city is facing. And a lot of uh, their ire has been aimed against the, um, you know, the big uh, real estate development elite in, um, in Hong Kong, which is certainly very much the same kind of um, uh, the same kind of struggle, which we are facing here in New York city, including in Chinatown on the lower East side, of course, with our neighborhoods being, you know, threatened by um, super development and gentrification. So there is an obvious, very, very, very obvious point of solidarity. But some of their rhetoric has um, at times betrayed a certain whiff of, uh, you know, cultural chauvinism towards mainlanders. You know, we Hong Kongers are, you know, civilized and democratic. And, uh, you know, the mainlanders are all, uh, you know, brainwashed by totalitarianism. There's been a certain whiff of that kind of rhetoric at times, which I have noted. Also, what I want to emphasize here is that um, the actual five demands, it's important to keep in mind what the actual five demands of the Hong Kong protest movement have been, because there's been a lot of, you know, a lot of misconceptions about this, okay? The first demand is a complete withdrawal of the extradition bill, which is what sparked the protest movement in the first place back in June which in the extradition bill has now been suspended, which would allow uh, those accused of crimes by China in Hong Kong to be summarily extradited into mainland China. Uh, That bill has been officially now suspended, but not um, officially withdrawn from the, uh, the Legislative Council. So that's the first demand. Second, establish an independent commission of inquiry uh, into the police brutality during the course of the protest, dropping the charges against all of those arrested over the course of the protest, that the government um, officially repudiate use of the word riot in regard to the protesters, because riot charges carry a very, very considerable uh, prison term. And uh, finally, uh, you know, which has been the demand of the protest movements that we've seen gaining ground in Hong Kong, you know, over the past uh, four or five years now, Genuine universal suffrage, direct free elections for the Hong Kong chief executive. There cannot be any equivocation on supporting these five demands. These five demands are all entirely just. Um, There's been uh, a certain perception that uh, the protesters really want separatism. They really want independence for Hong Kong. Now, this is not one of the five official demands of the protest movement. Have to emphasize that. But there is a certain element in 
the democracy movement in Hong Kong, the so-called localist element, which um, actually is leaning, increasingly calling for actual independence from China, formal independence, not the one country, two systems model, but actually, you know, formal de jure independence for Hong Kong. This, you know, tendency and, uh, you know, the sort of contradiction within the movement between those who are seeking democracy within the context of democratic change in China and those who simply want to secede from China and become formally independent was seen most obviously two years ago in uh, 2016 when um, the official commemoration in Hong Kong of the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre in Beijing, which is always a big deal in Hong Kong every year. Of course, you're not allowed to hold any such uh, commemorations in mainland China. So the one in Hong Kong is always a big deal. And uh, that year, 2016, the uh, commemoration was boycotted by the, uh, the localist element. And during uh, the vigil, which was held in uh, Victoria Park that year, which due to the boycott was um, smaller than in previous years, a, uh, a localist protester actually rushed the stage at the event and um, seized a microphone to exhort, quote, we don't want a democratic China. We want Hong Kong independence. Now, <clears throat> with all due respect, and again, <laughs> I'm speaking, I acknowledge, okay, let me once again repeat the caveats. I'm speaking from the other side of the planet here in New York City, and I hope I'm not coming across as, you know, some, uh, some arrogant white guy up on his high horse uh, making uh, diktats to, uh, you know, a movement that I'm really not involved in and merely supporting from afar on the other side of the planet, okay? But nonetheless, uh, this is stuff that I've been, as I've been following the whole situation and blogging about it, and, uh, you know, I've actually uh, attended events in support of the Hong Kong protest movement and in support of some other questions we're going to be touching on here. <clears throat> Tibet, the Uyghurs, Taiwan, etc., I've got to, uh, I have to call it as I see it. And hopefully we can, you know, I encourage uh, people who are um, more fluent in the matters that I'm discussing to, uh, you know, be in touch and tell me if uh, I'm onto something or if I'm off base. But in other words, I have to call it as I see it. You know, I think the notion that we don't want a democratic China, we want Hong Kong independence, is problematic. Even if, and I'm not saying... I'm not weighing in one way or the other on this at the moment. But even if you support Hong Kong independence, you shouldn't be hostile or dismissive of the notion of a democratic China. These are not mutually exclusive things. In fact, no matter what future the people of Hong Kong democratically choose for themselves, whether it's independence or not, it isn't going to happen unless there is some kind of a democratic opening in China. And a free future for Hong Kong, no matter what that looks like, is ultimately predicated on some kind of democratic change in China, which, of course, is a very, very, very difficult proposition, I readily acknowledge. But, you know, Hong Kong being able to um, have free elections and really achieve self-determination without that is also 
an extremely unlikely proposition and basically impossible. And, you know, I really think that, you know, looking to um, Western imperial powers to, you know, bail them out is an illusion. Because, first of all, it's not going to happen. You know, Trump and Boris Johnson are no friends of democracy, to say the least. No matter how much Trump has invested in his um, trade war and rivalry with People's Republic of China, he's not going to, uh, you know, defend the Hong Kong pro-democracy movement to the ultimate consequences. It's a total illusion. Of course, he's not going to do that. And in fact, the more the democracy movement in Hong Kong looks to the United States and Britain for support, the more it abets Beijing's propaganda that the entire movement in Hong Kong has been, you know, fomented by Western powers and is, you know, astroturf, so to speak, and just, you know, a, an imperialist charade. So uh, while I support self-determination for everybody everywhere, self-determination does not have to mean independence. Obviously, there has been some kind of a, you know, an informal alliance, which has been emerging recently between the Hong Kong pro-democracy and localist movements, and uh, quite particularly the struggles of the Tibetans and the Uyghurs, the Turkic and Muslim people of the far northwest of China, in what is variously known as either Xinjiang or East Turkestan, depending on who you ask. If you ask Beijing, it's Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. And if you ask uh, the increasingly separatist-minded elements of the, uh, the Uyghur diaspora and exile establishment, it's East Turkestan. Now, hopefully, I don't have to emphasize that clearly East Turkestan or Xinjiang, if you will, and Tibet, you know, have both been denied self-determination and are both facing extreme degrees of oppression and repression, particularly the Uyghurs in Xinjiang or East Turkestan, depending on what you want to call it, over the course of uh, the past couple of years have actually been, you know, massively uh, forcibly interned in concentration camps, which are euphemistically called re-education centers. Perhaps as many as a million have now been detained. Uh, this is a truly, truly horrific and terrifying development, uh, which we have witnessed over the course of the past couple of years in this extremely remote part of the world where human rights investigators and, 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 and the outside media have been, uh, world media, you know, been denied access. But the, the reports have been, you know, trickling out and... The construction of these concentration camps has been documented by satellite imagery and so on. It's utterly, utterly ghastly and sets a really terrible precedent that the People's Republic of China has been getting away. The Beijing government and Xi Jinping, to be more accurate, have been getting away with um, this extremely you know, draconian, oppressive policy. And you know, let me emphasize here, okay, that I am not engaging in, you know, self-congratulation that, oh, aren't we so nice and civilized and democratic here in the West, as opposed to, you know, those terrible people in China who are building concentration camps. On the contrary, one of the reasons that it is so dangerous is that it is going to be emulated by other governments around the world, including not only Vladimir Putin, 
who has now broached building um, similar detention centers for the Crimean Tartars, but also by Donald Trump here in the United States, who is establishing a nascent embryonic concentration camp system for, you know, so-called illegal immigrants. So this sets an absolutely terrifying precedent. And once again, it's really important that we do not get confused on this matter. Trump, once again, he has been exploiting the oppression in Xinjiang or East Turkestan for his own propaganda purposes, for his imperial rivalry with China. But obviously, the man who is putting together an embryonic concentration camp system here in the United States doesn't have any real, genuine concern with the mass internment of the Uyghurs. So I caution the Uyghur exile leadership against viewing Trump as an ally, and I similarly caution my comrades on the left here in the United States not to give Xi Jinping a pass about the mass internment of the Uyghurs just because Trump happens to be protesting it for his own cynical and hypocritical reasons. (laughs) Do you get it? So uh, this is um, an extremely urgent and pressing issue, which demands our attention and demands our, you know, unflinching analysis, which is what I am attempting, you know, in perhaps my own muddled way to uh, to try to bring the bear here. So, uh, you know, I again, I support the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong. I also support the struggle of the Tibetans and the Uyghurs, but not without Certain concerns, I'm not even going to go so far as to say criticism, but certain concerns which I am going to raise here. The website of a group calling itself the East Turkestan National Awakening Movement is openly calling for independence for East Turkestan. And they make the point that, contrary to Beijing's official propaganda, there have actually been periods in history when there was an independent East Turkestan. Not even going back to, you know, ancient and medieval times. Just in the 20th century, there were two periods in the uh, 1930s and 1940s when uh, East Turkestan republics were declared in the region, which China now calls Xinjiang, in uh, 1933 and in 1944. And the second one lasted until the communists took over in 1949. So it's a period of five years when there was actually an independent East Turkestan. Now, where it gets a little bit, shall we say, um, maybe a little bit troubling, (laughs) or certainly, you know, uh, raises some concerns for me, let's just put it that way, is that there is a a map on the website of the East Turkestan National Awakening Movement, which shows um, the territory of what is now the People's Republic of China broken up into five different countries, five different political entities. Uh, First, you've got a reduced China, very significantly reduced in terms of its territory. And I will point out that to a certain extent, this um, reflects maps from the the Qing or uh, Manchu dynasty before the 1911 revolution, which would show China as an entity within the Chinese Empire and what's now Tibet, Xinjiang, Inner Mongolia, and Manchuria as um, 
entities within the Chinese empire, but not strictly speaking part of China. However, this map, which is on the, uh, the website of the East Turkestan National Awakening Movement, doesn't show any Chinese empire, just shows a extremely reduced China. And then it shows an independent East Turkestan, an independent Tibet, an independent South Mongolia, and an independent Manchuria. Now, these last two are particularly politically tricky. Okay, South Mongolia, which is what they're calling Inner Mongolia. You know, again, from the perspective of Beijing, the area of Mongolia that is the land of the Mongol people, which is under Chinese rule, is Inner Mongolia because it's closer to the Chinese heartland as opposed to Outer Mongolia, which is the independent country of Mongolia. From the perspective of the Mongol people, the area of Mongolia, which is under Chinese rule, is South Mongolia, as opposed to the independent nation of Mongolia, which is immediately to the north. First, I have to state that the ethnic Mongols, like the Uyghurs and the Tibetans, are indeed facing persecution under Chinese rule and utterly counterproductive charges of separatism for raising any dissent or demands for redress. And in fact, I covered on my website, countervortex.org, just last year, the case of a um, respected Mongol historian by the name of Lamjab Borjigin, if I am pronouncing his name correctly, who uh, was placed under house arrest in Inner Mongolia to await trial on charges of, quote, separatism and sabotaging national unity, unquote, over... Um, a book that he published, he kind of self-published in Sami's Dot style, so to speak, because he couldn't get a publisher for it, an official publisher for it. Um, a work of history which was uh, purporting to document the deaths of some 30,000 people in Inner Mongolia in what he called the campaign of genocide against the, um, the ethnic Mongols during China's Cultural Revolution in the 1960s. Now, I haven't read the book, and I don't believe that it's been translated into English, and it probably isn't even available at all. I believe uh, some copies might have been published in the independent country of Mongolia. But I'm not in a position to, um, to judge his scholarship, obviously. But, you know, having somebody arrested and facing criminal charges for publishing a work of history is oppressive on the face of it. And certainly nothing suggests that Lamjab Borjigin was, in fact, advocating separatism from China. And again, this is just sort of the, uh, the propaganda that Beijing uses to tar any protest or dissent or demand for redress of grievances as separatism. But there are voices, particularly in the Mongol diaspora community, which are calling for independence for Inner Mongolia or Southern Mongolia, depending on how you view it. And, you know, I'll point out that the last time that there was an independent, quote-unquote, state in South or Inner Mongolia was uh, during the Second World War, when the so-called state of Menjiang was set up under the nominal rule of a Mongol prince by the Japanese occupation, actually in uh, 1936, before World War II proper began. And this served as a, uh, a staging ground for the uh, Japanese invasion of Outer Mongolia, that is to say the independent state of Mongolia, in 1939. 
which was repulsed by a joint Mongolian-Soviet force, which was, by the way, the only battle between Soviet and Japanese forces in World War II before the USSR formally entered the war against Japan just for a few days in uh, August of 1945 before the war finally came to an end with the atomic bombings of Japan by the United States. So uh, the one time in recent history when there was an independent state in South or Inner Mongolia, it wasn't really independent. It was basically a, um, a puppet state established by Japanese imperialism. This reality per se should have no bearing on the question of whether South or Inner Mongolia is entitled to independence. That should be considered on its own merits. But nonetheless, the history is worth taking into consideration. Similarly, back in the 1990s when Yugoslavia was falling apart, it was pointed out by opponents of um, Croatian independence that the last time there had been an independent Croatia was in the Second World War when it was a Nazi satellite state. Simply the case. But that didn't have any bearing on whether, in fact, Croatia had the right to go its own way. But even if you think that it did, <laughs> it also has to be said that, you know, under Franjo Tudjman, I mean, Franjo Tudjman really was kind of a, um, a fascistic and, uh, and reactionary personality, as was Slobodan Milosevic, by the way, the leader of Serbia at that time. And it was, you know, the the mutual ugly nationalism in Serbia and Croatia, which um, fueled the war that broke out. And at that time, you know, I was just beginning to follow this whole situation as a, uh, as a writer and an activist. And, uh, you know, my position was, uh, you know, again, a neither-nor position. I was not favoring either Tudjman or Milosevic, thank you very much, and saw them both as enemies to be opposed. And I was supporting the anti-militarist and the pro-coexistence forces in Serbia and Croatia alike. Uh, but more blatantly problematic is the case of Manchuria, which is also shown as an independent state on this map, which I'm discussing on the website of the East Turkestan National Awakening Movement. Now, this obviously recalls, again, the Japanese puppet state of Manchu Kuo, which was established between 1932 and 1945, which is the only independent state that ever existed in Manchuria in the modern era. And after the war, it was broken up for obvious reasons into contemporary provinces of Jilin, Liaoning, and Heilongjiang. If I am pronouncing them correctly, please forgive me if I am not. And the name Manchuria is no longer used in China. And while the Manchus remain an, uh, an official minority nationality, as they're called, in China, the Manchu language is nearly extinct. And certainly, you know, um, <clears throat> any nostalgia for the Japanese puppet state of Manchu Kuo would certainly be an egregious faux pas, <laughs> shall we say? <laughs> uh, and unfortunately, it has, in fact, been evidenced. In the, uh, you know, they use this term today, ecosystem. I really can't stand using the word ecosystem in this technological sense. I think that it should be relegated to the sphere of organic biology, but um, the term ecosystem is used today to refer to, uh, you know, um, online communities of um, interacting websites and Facebook pages and whatnot. And in the ecosystem, particularly around the East Turkestan National Awakening Movement, uh, I stumbled upon a remnant faction which survives even now of the old ruling party 
of Manchu Kuo under the Japanese occupation, which calls itself the Concordia Association of Manchuria, which still has, believe it or not, a Facebook page and a Twitter account with propaganda openly glorifying figures associated with the old um, Manchu Kuo regime. Now, hopefully, listeners are familiar enough with their history that they are aware that the Japanese occupation in China in the Second World War and uh, the years immediately preceding it was utterly, utterly, utterly oppressive and, you know, committed crimes which were akin to those of all of the fascist powers which Japan was at that time, you know, rivaling those of Nazi Germany in Europe. Whatever legitimate grievances the Manchu people may continue to have today in the contemporary People's Republic of China, Manchu Kuo nostalgists are obviously a very, very impolitic ally for the Uyghurs and the Tibetans and the Hong Kong pro-democracy movement. And please write into the hands of Beijing's propaganda. So this puts me in something of a difficult position as, a, you know, an activist and a blogger and so on. You know, I urgently feel the need to support the Uyghurs in the face of mass internment and, you know, this utter police state which they are facing in Xinjiang or East Turkestan. But uh, in no sense do I wish to be um, <laughs> loaning any support whatsoever to Manchu Kuo nostalgists and people who, uh, you know, have got uh, illusions about the crimes of Japanese imperialism in China. So if anybody from the East Turkestan National Awakening Movement is listening tonight, you know, I think that we need to have a, uh, a little discussion about this. So while I am on the side of the Hong Kong protesters, and while I'm on the side of the Tibetans and the Uyghurs and the Mongols in their struggle for dignity and self-determination, and perhaps on the side of the Manchus, although I'm not nearly as familiar with the issues that they're facing, I also have to emphasize that self-determination does not, contrary to popular belief, necessarily imply political independence or separatism. It can, but it doesn't have to. People can freely choose to be a part of a larger political entity. Of course, for it to be self-determination, they have to freely choose to be a part of that political entity. But self-determination does not automatically mean political independence. And it isn't for me to judge whether the Uyghurs and the Tibetans, and for that matter, the Mongols and the Manchus and the Hong Kongers, feel that they have, you know, um, exhausted the possibilities of a dignified existence under the sovereignty of the People's Republic of China. It's not for me to judge. It's their decision, not mine. And I recognize that. That said, I do have to uh, state from my privileged position on the other side of the planet, which I readily acknowledge, that there may be a case against separatism. And again, certainly, even if uh, ultimately these peoples do choose separatism, they are not going to be able to achieve it unless there is some kind of a democratic change in China. So no matter what they are struggling for, ultimately, 
it's going to be imperative for them to build some kind of alliance, some kind of solidarity with the emerging protest movements and pro-democracy struggles in China, which continue even now that political space has been dramatically closing under the past few years that Xi Jinping has been in power. Just recently, back in July, in the midst of the protest in Hong Kong, there was a big wave of protest in the city of Wuhan in central China, in Hubei province, where some 10,000 protesters took to the streets to oppose a um, construction of a waste-to-energy convergence plant, which was slated for a district within the city. And uh, they chanted, give us back our clean environment before being set upon by the riot police, leading to um, many being arrested. And photos of the repression were actually circulated on Weibo, which is the uh, Chinese equivalent of Twitter, with um, netizens across China condemning the repression. Now, this is a very, very significant sign of hope that even in the increasingly repressive atmosphere in China, you know, this kind of online dissent remains possible. And this is to be encouraged. And, uh, you know, there had been a, uh, a whole wave in the, you know, the breakneck industrial development, which we've seen in China over uh, the past several years. There's been a wave of, uh, you know, terrible industrial disasters in several cities across China where chemical plants and so on have exploded and you know, leveled entire neighborhoods. So, you know, the concerns of these uh, protesters in Wuhan against uh, the construction of this, um, uh, you know, uh, this power plant are um, not to be dismissed. So I do wish that I had heard less from the Hong Kong protesters about looking to the United States and Britain as their protectors and had heard more from the Hong Kong protesters in support of the Wuhan protesters and about attempting to build solidarity between the Hong Kongers and the mainland Chinese in their struggles for democracy and political empowerment. And in fact, you know, I've always maintained that one of the reasons that Beijing has taken such a uh, intransigent and inflexible position with the Tibetans and the Uyghurs is the potential for ferment and revolt among the broad Han masses in China. The hyper-exploited captive labor force in the industrial zones of Shenzhen and so on, and the peasants who were being massively expropriated of their lands by corrupt bureaucrats, and agricultural lands being, you know, illegally taken over for industrial zones and uh, real estate development, you know, McMansions of the uh, nouveau riche elite in China. And, you know, the threat that oppressed minority peoples in China, such as the Tibetans and the Uyghurs, could make common cause with the broad Han masses against the ruling party elite and the Beijing bureaucracy. That is what poses a real threat to the one-party totalitarian regime in China. And that, I submit, is why that regime is taking such a, um, an inflexible position on Tibet and the Uyghurs. The threat of Han-Tibetan-Uyghur unity against the regime and in favor of a democratic opening in China and a dignified place in China, both for minority people such as the Tibetans and the Uyghurs and for the Han workers and peasants who have been increasingly left behind by globalization and China's embrace of savage capitalism 
over the past generation and change since Deng Xiaoping. And, uh, you know, I began this podcast by invoking John Lennon, and I'm going to end this podcast by invoking another Lennon, Vladimir Ilyich Lennon. <laughs> I don't often invoke Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, but um, in this case, I am going to. In 1914, Lenin wrote an essay entitled The Right of Nations to Self-Determination, in which he commented on um, Norwegian independence from Sweden, which was achieved in uh, 1905, just a few years earlier, in which he wrote, quote, the unity and class solidarity of the Swedish and the Norwegian proletariat gained when the Swedish workers upheld Norway's freedom to secede and form an independent state, unquote. All right, now I have to point out that uh, <laughs> Lenin was writing this in 1914. And, uh, you know, just a few years later, 1917, when he had achieved power in Russia, and um, it came, uh, you know, time for him to uh, have to make decisions about whether to grant people such as the Crimean Tartars and the Turkic peoples of Central Asia their own self-determination and independence. Well, then his tune changed, okay? But nonetheless, the, um, uh, the principle that he was articulating in his uh, 1914 essay, The Right of Nations to Self-Determination, is one which I think is extremely insightful and has, uh, you know, uh, lessons for the dilemmas which are facing the People's Republic of China and the lands that it rules today. And even if the Tibetans and the Uyghurs are ultimately going to, and the Hong Kongers for that matter, ultimately going to seek independence, even this is going to be predicated on building solidarity with the Han people of mainland China who form the overwhelming majority and is going to be contingent on joining them in some kind of a struggle for popular empowerment and democratic change in China. So uh, once again, I acknowledge that I'm pretty much out of my depth on these issues, trying to make the best of things as a layperson, so to speak, not speaking any of the languages involved, not speaking Chinese or Uyghur or Tibetan. <laughs> I hope I haven't come across as too much of, uh, you know, an arrogant gringo here. But, uh, you know, I got to call it as I see it. I've been, um, you know, doing my best as an activist and a blogger to loan support for the struggles in Hong Kong and of the Tibetan and the Uyghur peoples. As a matter of conscience, I can't do so without airing the concerns which I have. So uh, once again, I'm just putting this forth out there into um, cyberspace in um, not as, you know, any dictacs from, uh, you know, Bill Weinberg, <laughs> you know, um, <clears throat> propounding on the principles of revolutionary Weinbergism, but uh, uh, in the spirit of um, trying to provoke open and respectful dialogue. I hope to hear from you. Once again, this has been Bill Weinberg on the Counter Vortex. You can check us out online where everything that I've been ranting about this evening is all uh, also blogged for your reading pleasure, countervortex.org. Please be in touch and let me know what you think. This has been the Counter Vortex with Bill Weinberg. Join the counter vortex. Join the resistance. Rant on you next time.